Well, we are on, I think it's week seven, isn't it? Week seven of um, our series. And uh, the title of uh, our series is To Live is Christ, and we're working our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians in the New Testament. And um, today our subject is people with, with attitude. I don't know if you've uh, ever noticed this, but uh, some of the great passages in the Bible are the result of Christians and churches getting it wrong. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. That some of the great passages included in the Bible are the result of Christians and churches actually getting it wrong. Let me give you a few examples. That great chapter on love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is used in almost every wedding you attend. It wasn't used, I don't think, in yesterday's wedding. But... That great passage from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is because the Corinthians, the the Christians rather, in Corinth were being unloving in the way that they were acting to each other. And the church members at Corinth were trying to outdo each other in spiritual gifts. And many of them thought that speaking in tongues was it. It was the be-all and end-all of everything. The only spiritual gift worth having. And this was a kind of thinking which was very unhelpful to the church there, as tongue speakers were regarded as spiritually superior and everybody else was inferior to them. And Paul, in that book of Corinthians, his letter to the Corinthians, spends three whole chapters dealing with this. It starts off, as very often you hear in weddings, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And then a couple of verses later, Paul goes on to give one of the greatest definitions of love in literature. Love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. And where there are tongues, they will be stilled. So all of that was written simply because the Corinthians were unloving to each other. Move on a couple of chapters in that great letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The greatest chapter in the Bible on the subject of the resurrection. And some people say it's the greatest chapter in the Bible. End of. Full stop. And this great chapter was written... Because there were some people in the Corinthian church who were saying, there's no resurrection from the dead. What irony there, isn't there? That if they had not said what they had said, then the church down through the ages probably would be much the poorer as we would not have the magnificent words of Paul and teaching which has so blessed us for all those years. Go back a few chapters into one Corinthians chapter 11, and you have Paul's famous words on the Lord's Supper, words that we often use on a Sunday morning when we are sharing the communion together. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is uh, in remembrance for you. Now, we know that that's a magnificent passage, and we hear it all the time, and many of us probably can quote that passage. But Paul wrote those words 
to correct something that was happening in the church of Corinth in the first century. The Christians in Corinth didn't share communion as we share it here, but they shared it at a time where they shared the agape meal, which is very much like a bring and share meal together. And when they did this, some of the wealthy people in the church, it appears, brought in a lot of food to the agape meal, but didn't share what they had with the poor members of the church. So you can imagine, some went away stuffed, and others went away very hungry. And uh, Paul wasn't happy with that at all. And therefore, he had to write to the Corinthians to redress the balances and to put them right on that. And I challenge you, go through the letters uh, of the various apostles in the New Testament and see for yourself what wonderful passages are included in our Bibles only because of Christians or the church actually getting it quite wrong. And that's the introduction really for this morning's passage. Because this morning's passage is one of the most well-known and well-loved passages in the New Testament. And it's a passage which falls into this category of the Christians at Philippi getting it quite wrong. And that's why Paul needs to write these things. Okay, let's look at this together. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And I imagine that many of you can just quote these words off without even looking at your Bibles because you know them so well. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So again, we ask, why did Paul include these words, these magnificent words, in his letter to the Philippians? The answer to that is, because the church at Philippi, 2,000 years ago, was having some problems with their unity, or should we say disunity. And uh, when we eventually get to chapter 4, Philippians, now we're in the middle of May, aren't we? It'll probably be the middle of July before we get there. We will read in chapter 4 of Paul pleading with two ladies from the church whose names were Euodia and Syntyche, and they were two people who came alongside Paul and helped share the gospel. They were fellow workers, and Paul is there pleading for them to kiss and make up. He doesn't quite put it that way. That's the way that I've put it. But they'd fallen out with each other. And we're not told why they'd fallen out with each other. It may be that both of them wanted to be the president of the Women's Guild or bake the anniversary cake for sisterhood or something a little less serious than that. We don't know. But very often when people fall out, others get dragged into the squabble and people take sides. And it's not long then before you have a church at war with each other. But long before we get to chapter 4, in the verses that we've read together over the last number of weeks, we can see that Paul provides us with the idea that all is not well at Philippi. And I'm just going to 
put on screen a few verses that we have looked at and are looking at today, which gives us the idea of something going on there. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes, Stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. And obviously we need to, when we're reading scripture, read between the lines because it's a little bit like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. I don't know if you've ever been in a room when someone else is on the telephone and you think, I sort of get what they're saying, but I'm not really sure. And we need to do our detective work a little bit. And the reason that Paul writes this, the inference is that he has to write this because in fact they were not getting on with each other and they were not one in spirit and as one man. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, he writes, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And again, the suggestion is, the reason that he has to write these words is because they were not, in fact, being like-minded or being one in spirit and purpose. Um, otherwise, Paul wouldn't have written these words. In the following verse, verse 3, he writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And then in verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And when we put these verses together, this isn't rocket science. I would argue that Paul is only needing to write these things simply because there was an issue in this church of Philippi. Now, the root cause of disunity, whether it's in the first century church or whether it's in a 21st century Western church, is found in one word. The real cause of disunity. And I'll put the word on screen for you. It's the word self. And Paul challenges here Christians in Philippi, firstly against selfish ambition, secondly against self-importance, and thirdly, against self-centeredness. So let's have a look at some of these words. First of all, selfish ambition. He writes there in verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Now there's nothing wrong with being ambitious, to have a desire to succeed. As long as when we are doing so, that we are genuinely submitting our desires to the will of God and also for the glory of God. But selfish ambition is always a, a wrong thing, it's a bad thing. American writer Gore Vidal, uh, who described Christianity as the greatest disaster ever to strike the, the West, once said these words. He said, it is not enough to succeed. Others must, must fail, for whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. Just look at those words for a moment. What are you saying there? To be happy, I've got to succeed. But to be happy, really happy, some of my friends, they need to fail. And I think that's an awful way of looking at life, don't you? And Paul writes here to these uh, first century Christians about selfish ambition. In the same verse, he speaks about self-importance. Uh, the words vain conceit there. Uh, Bible scholar William Barclay uh, describes the need that many people have for personal prestige. And he writes these words. Prestige is for many people an even greater temptation than wealth. 
to be admired and respected, to have a platform seat, to have one's opinion sought, to be known by name and appearance, even to be flattered, offer many the most desirable things. I heard one rather amusing story of one VIP who was so full of his own importance um, that he was irritated by what he considered an incompetent service in, by the new steward in his club. And he said to this new steward, do you know who I am? No, sir, was the reply, but I will make inquiries and then come back to let you know. <laughs> I think that was a great answer and he deserved all he got. I'm not sure whether this new steward kept his job or not, but um, that's a great answer. And Paul also speaks of self-centeredness in verse 4. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I thank God that I am part of a church family that does that in principle. And that's really at the heart of our church, that we have an outward focus. We look out for one another. We look out for those in our community, especially those who are in most need of help and support and love within our community, the socially isolated very often, and those who are disenfranchised. Each of you should look out not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then Paul provides us with this most wonderful example of what Christians should be like when he says, in verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then following this, the, and the reading that we read together just a few moments ago, was a, 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 probably a great hymn that the early Christians uh, sang together. And it starts at a high point. Jesus is God, and yet he allowed himself to become nothing. Didn't selfishly hold on to his rights, didn't grasp onto them. He became a servant, he became a human being, he humbled himself even further to death on a cross. But from there on, God exalts him and gives him a name which is above all names, and every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. So in our section that we are looking at this morning, first of all, Paul tells us that some people at Philippi had the wrong attitude. Their attitude was that of selfish ambition and self-importance and self-centeredness. And then he tells us about having the right attitude, Christ's attitude, and challenges us to follow Jesus in that. And that is in selflessness, submission, and sacrifice. Let's have a look at these together. In verse 6, Who being the very, in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And uh, these verses uh, tell us that Jesus came down from heaven into this world. Though equal with God, he laid aside his majesty, his splendor, his glory, and became a helpless babe in a dirty stable. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I like the way that the message uh, puts this. It says that he had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. And then Paul tells us that um, Jesus did not grasp onto that which was rightfully his. He willingly let go. Now, so that, you know, we, we get this right. What did he let go of? Well, he didn't let go of his deity. 
because Jesus was as much God when he walked on the face of the earth as he had been in heaven. But what he let go of was, if you like, the outward trappings of his deity, the majesty, the glory, the splendor. He gave up his riches. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Though he was rich, yet for you a sakes became poor, so that through his poverty you, we, might become rich. What a great verse that is, isn't it? And think about it. Jesus gave up everything. He needed, he needed to borrow a place to be born. And what a place that was. Uh, he, he needed to borrow a house to sleep in, a boat to preach from, an animal to ride on, a coin for an illustration, a room to share the Last Supper, and he needed to borrow a tomb to be buried in. Although he didn't need that very long, did he? What else did Jesus give up? He gave up his heavenly glory. There's a great prayer in John's Gospel, in John chapter 17, and it's called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus, where Jesus is coming to his Father and just opening his heart and praying. And we have the words there of Jesus. I, I brought you, speaking to his Father, glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. You see, Jesus is the one before whom the angels covered their faces. Jesus is the object of heaven's adoration, and yet he descends into our realm, into our world. The prophet Isaiah speaks of him as despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. What else did Jesus give up? He gave up the independent exercise of his authority. But Jesus, when he was on earth, chose to be dependent upon the Spirit's leading. I saw, I, I saw not seek my own will, he, wrote, he said, but the will of him who sent me. Now, Jesus is our role model. He is the one that we imitate. He is the one that we seek to emulate. The highest became the lowest. The creator and the sustainer of all things poured himself out. The one who possessed everything became nothing. And it's an old Graham Kendrick song. Uh, if you were around in the 80s, you would have sung this quite a lot. Which says, from heaven you came, helpless babe. Entered our world, your glory veiled. Not to be served, but to serve and to give your life that we might live. This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him. To bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. You see, in our world, people are often not willing to give up of their privileges and their power and their position in order to help others. And the order of the day is me, my, mine. Self-preservation, self-promotion at all costs. Climb the ladder of success. Achieve. Get to the top. Don't worry who you stand on to get there. Survival of the fittest. But with Jesus, it was the other way around. And the life of Jesus is such a sharp, sharp rebuke to the preoccupation with ourselves. Jesus focused on others. He was totally selfless in a selfish world. And that is what he calls us as Christians to be. And Paul writes, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And later on in the chapter, 
he mentions his spiritual son, Timothy. Now, I'm not going to say too much about this because I'll spoil Dan's thunder in a couple of weeks' time. But he speaks of Timothy in this way, verse 20 and 21. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And I think that, imagine someone saying this about you. That is some compliment, isn't it? It's some compliment to be, that was paid here by Paul to this young son in the faith, um, Timothy. And what he's saying here is that he's not like other people. Other people are just interested in themselves. They're interested in their own affairs. But Timothy, he's the real deal. He's the genuine article. He's interested in your welfare. He's looking out for others. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, all of us here today are probably living our lives either according to Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, or we are living our lives according to Philippians chapter 2, verse 21. What am I talking about? Let's put it on screen. Philippians 1, 21, for me to live is Christ. Philippians 2, 21, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And that's a challenge to us this morning as well. And maybe that's uh, something just to, if you're taking notes, write that down. Which am I living uh, for? Is it Philippians 1.21 or Philippians 2.21? I think that we're all um, probably saying, well, it, it's, it's, it's got to be the first. But check your hearts. Reflect on that uh, throughout this week. The next thing that um, uh, Paul writes about is after the selflessness of Jesus is the submission of Christ in verse uh, 7. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. There's a story uh, that goes back to 1996, uh, 1986 rather, where two ships collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia and hundreds of passengers died as they were hurled into the icy waters below. An investigation revealed the cause of the accident. It wasn't because some technological failure like the, the radar malfunction or a thick fog. The reason for that crash, that collision of the two ships, was because of human stubbornness. Each captain was aware of the other ship nearby. Both of them could have steered clear. But according to the news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the other. Each was too proud as these two great ships came closer together. Each was too proud to yield. And by the time that they came to their senses, it was too late. It's not a picture sometimes of human pride. You know, so often these days, in our world, we hear so much about rights, about statutory rights and animal rights and gay rights and employees' rights and women's rights and so forth. I thank God that Jesus did not stand on his rights. He took the very nature of a servant. And you see, the first generations of Christians, they got it. In the end, they got it. They, they, they didn't get it at first. But they realized that the greatest they could become in God's kingdom is a servant. And when the various uh, writers of the New Testament put their letters together, it's really interesting that the way that they introduced themselves. 
Paul, for example, when he writes uh, Romans, in Romans 1.1, he addresses himself, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. James, in his letter also, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, James 1.1. Simon Peter, he wrote two letters, and in his second letter, this is again the way that he introduces himself, Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And when you see that, you know, those are the kind of verses that you quickly read through as you begin a New Testament book. But what are they really telling us? Well, they tell us that these guys considered their status as servants of Christ to be the most significant part of their identity. And that really stands in stark contrast to the pattern of our world. From a world's perspective, up is the only way that you go. You ascend to fame, you ascend to money, you ascend to power. Up is the direction of greatness. But we are told that the direction of greatness for a Christian is down, not up. And to be useful to God and to be useful in His, his hands is to be empty of ourselves and empty of personal ambitions and empty of pride. Some of you might have come across, you know, certainly if you've been a, a Christian for some time, you might have come across Hudson Taylor. How many of you have heard of Hudson Taylor? There's a few of you. Now, Hudson Taylor was a, a great Christian who lived in the 1800s, and he was a, a British missionary to China. And he was the, the founder of the China Inland Mission and spent 51 years in China responsible for bringing over 800 missionaries to China, starting 125 schools, and resulted in 18,000 conversions to the Christian faith. And on one occasion, Hudson Taylor, this great man, was due to preach in a church in, in Melbourne, Australia, in a Presbyterian church there. And the leader of the service introduced him in rather eloquent and glowing terms. He told this large congregation of all that Hudson Taylor had accomplished in China and then presented him as our illustrious guest. Taylor stood quietly for a moment and then opened his message by saying, Dear friends, I am just the little servant of an illustrious master. I just love that. You see, Jesus was such a wonderful example of servanthood I think that we all know the story, don't we? On the evening of the Last Supper, the day before Jesus was crucified, the disciples were bickering amongst themselves and contending for position about who was the greatest among them, which is utterly bewildering how they were in that state and place. You just picture the 12 of them, 12 disciples in an upper room having dinner served, yet none of them was prepared to wash the feet of the others because there was no uh, servant there that night. And that in itself, if you are new to the Bible, might sound a very strange uh, custom to us. But in those days, it was quite a necessity because Jerusalem, the streets were unpaved and uh, people wore open sandals or so feet that got dusty in the dry seasons, got muddy in the, in, in, in the, when it rained. And uh, many homes had a servant at the door to wash the feet of guests. It was a menial job. It was... Uh, the work of a slave or a servant. 
But it was also necessary in those days because when they sat down to eat, they didn't sit around a table as we would sit on chairs. They leaned on their left side and they ate with their right hands. So if the guy was next to you, hadn't washed his feet, you knew all about it. But since there was competition, no one wanted to give ground to the others. No one wanted to wash the other's feet. They wanted to elevate themselves, not lower themselves. They wanted greatness, not servanthood. And then Jesus, Jesus, their Lord and Master did the unthinkable. He took his outer garment, put a towel around his waist, got a bowl of water, filled it and washed the feet, the stinking dirty feet of his disciples. And then he said to them, as I have done to you, you do to others. Now, I'm pretty sure that Jesus didn't mean that we do that literally, to get a bowl and wash one another's feet. Because in a sense, in the UK at least, that wouldn't have a huge amount of relevance to us today. But I think that Jesus was referring here to an attitude of heart. The attitude of heart that is, has the willingness to submit and serve others because, because we are his people. You see, you, you won't hear this anywhere else. The Christian faith is countercultural. It is the very opposite, it's the very antithesis of that which you see in society. Your attitude, says Paul, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That means we forgive. Why? We have been forgiven. It means that we don't hold on to our rights. It means that we don't grasp on. It means that we don't choose to worry about others who think that they are getting one over on us. It also means that there's no room for a competitive spirit. One-upmanship. Do you remember James and John, the sons of thunder, having an argument of who is going to sit at the right and left of Jesus when he got into his kingdom? And they were so rebuked by Jesus who said, whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The third thing that we see here about Paul teaching about Jesus, there was selflessness, submission, but also sacrifice that Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And throughout Human history, there have been people who have lived, walked this planet, who have had the same attitude as Jesus Christ. Men and women who have viewed themselves as servants. They have lived lives empty of themselves, empty of pride, empty of personal ambitions. Their will was to do his will. People like William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, who was interviewed near the close his life and he, these are the words that he said God had all there was of me there have been others who had greater plans greater opportunities than I but from the day I got a vision of what God could do I made up my mind God would have all there was of William Booth what a great saying I wonder if we could say something similar to that Mother Teresa is another one by blood and origin, I'm an Albanian. My citizenship is Indian. I'm a Catholic nun. As to my calling, I belong to the whole world. As to my heart, I belong entirely to Jesus. Time's gone.
Let me finish very quickly. We are called to be a people of attitude. That sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? That we are called to be people of attitude. To have the attitude of Christ. You see, it's possible to be a servant of Christ without having a servant attitude. It's possible to serve Christ because we love to be seen serving. We actually like to promote our unity, um, our humility. I know that sounds a bit uh, of a strange concept, but we need to just check our hearts on that. You know, do we serve because we love being seen serving and we want people to know how humble we are? It's possible to serve because we are an active, roll-up-your-sleeve sort of person. It's possible to serve Jesus in a begrudging way, despising each moment, grumbling at others who are leaving you to do all the work. Do you remember the conversation of Martha and Mary? That was essentially what was going on there, that Mary was saying to Jesus, tell my sister Mary to come and help in the kitchen, when Mary was just sat at the feet of Jesus. You see, you can serve Christ, and I can serve Christ, but we need to check that we do so with servant hearts. And I suppose this morning you can also agree with everything that I've said in this teaching. You can say amen in the right places. You might even agree with me that the greatest we can become in God's kingdom is a servant. But what we need to be very, very careful about is that all of this stuff just doesn't become theory to us. Yeah? You can know it all up there. You can say the right words. You can say amen to everything that's been going on here in this teaching this morning. But we need to make sure about that. That it's not just theory. It's not just in our heads. But it needs to get transferred into actually doing something practical. So serving others starts with having the right attitude of heart the recognition that as we serve others, we are serving Jesus. So, so important. Jesus humbled himself and was exalted by his Father. And Dan is going to be picking up this uh, next week from verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In other words, in God's kingdom, the only way up is, is down. And as we look out for other, others, and as we place their interests before our own, we serve Christ. And as we do this, God also promises to exalt us. And that's what the latter part of this, uh, these verses are about. In Luke 14, verse 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and for those who humble themselves will be exalted. We're going to sing a song together now, guys, if you'd like to come back. And this is an old song. Some of you might not know it because it's so old. I'll see who's singing it, and I'll see who the old ones are here amongst us. But it's a great song. It's one that I quoted a little bit earlier. It's Graham Kendrick's The Servant King. This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. And there's a verse which says, So let us learn how to serve, 
and in our lives enthrone him, each other's needs to prefer, for it is Christ we are serving. And I just want you this morning, not just to sing a song, because this is a song which is going to draw to a close our service today, but I want you to sing a song as a, a prayerful reflection. And you are using this as a vehicle to bring your prayers to God this morning. Would you stand with me, please? Let's sing this together. Thank you.